Exodus 20, 18 through 21. We have come to the last message on our series about the Ten Commandments. We have taken each commandment in turn. We have considered not only what the commandments forbid, but also what they encourage. This morning, we'll be looking together at the passage immediately following the giving of the Ten Commandments. My prayer as we do so is to be able to tie together what we've learned so far so as to better understand the big picture and the purpose of God's law. If you will, look with me at Exodus chapter 20 as I begin reading in verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. This is the word of God. A student at Cambridge University in England entered the classroom on exam day. He demanded the professor bring him cakes and ale. The professor refused, astonished at such a bizarre and bold request. The student then proceeded to read from the 400-year-old laws of Cambridge. They were written in Latin, and they were still in effect. The student read a passage that's translated into English as, Gentlemen sitting for examinations may request and require cakes and ale. So the professor, he reluctantly complied. He judged that Pepsi and hamburgers were the modern equivalent of the student's request, and the student was provided with these items. I mean, what could the professor say? The law was on the student's side. Three weeks later, the student received a summons to the Office of Academic Affairs. He was facing disciplinary action and was given a fine of five pounds, which is about $7.50. That was roughly the cost of the meal that he had consumed. But he was not fined for demanding cakes and milk. He was fined for boldly disregarding another obscure Cambridge law. He had failed to wear a sword to the examination. How the Old Testament law applies to us today can be confusing. One of the reasons is because the Ten Commandments serve a different purpose for the Christian than they do for the non-Christian. But before we look at that difference, I want to consider, first of all, the nature of the law. What is it? The nature of the law. What is the law? As we're reading through the Ten Commandments, it's easy to forget that God himself spoke them from Mount Sinai. As the Israelites stood at the base of the mountain, the audible voice of the Creator, the heavens and the earth, boomed forth these words. Now, there would be many other rules and regulations given to Israel that would govern every aspect of their lives, but these would all be communicated to Moses And in turn, he would communicate them to the people. The Ten Commandments were unique in that God himself audibly declared them. So what are some ways that these Ten Commands that we considered were set apart from the 603 other laws? Well, 
We read this in Exodus 24, verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. These words, as depicted in, in numerous pictures and illustrations, were inscribed on two stone tablets. The Hebrew phrases, they were actually shorter than our English translations. But typically what you see in an artist rendering in a picture is half of the commandments written on one tablet and the other five written on the other, half and half of each. However, this is not how the commandments would have been displayed. Actually, all ten commandments were written on each tablet, and they took up both sides. God was not concerned so much with the visual appeal as he was with what the stone tablets represented. You see, God was making a covenant with his people. A covenant, as we talked about before, in the ancient world was a binding agreement, typically between a greater and a lesser party. It usually contained promises of protection and provision from the greater party, like a king, and obligations from the lesser party, his subjects, that they would uphold in order to receive the king's provision and protection. Now, whenever an ancient king made a covenant with the subjects, there were at least two copies made. Whether the writing was done on a clay tablet or on sheets of papyrus, each party would receive a copy. We're familiar with this when it comes to contracts. As the signer, you receive an official copy of the contract, as does the one with whom you entered the contract. Now, both parties, they would take their copy of the covenant and put it in a safe place. Remember, in the ancient world, there were not attorney offices in which to keep an extra copy. There were, there were not safe deposit boxes at the bank. You were responsible for your copy as the king was for his. Where then would God keep his copy of the agreement? Well, keep in mind, this is a physical stone tablet. The safest place in ancient Israel, even when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, was in the most sacred object of the Israelites. That is the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, a few chapters over from 20, where we're looking this morning, gives instructions for building the ark. And in verse 21 of Exodus 25, we read, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. The testimony is the tablets of the Ten Commandments, as some translations spell out there saying the tablets of the testimony. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was only about four feet long, two feet wide and two feet deep. So the tablets would have been small enough to fit within this rectangular shaped box. And remember I said that both parties that entered into the covenant would place their copy in the safest place. Well, the safest place for the Israelites was also the Ark of the Covenant. This is why both copies of the covenant were kept together. This tells us about the nature of God's law. It is holy. After all, it was kept in the holiest place in Israel, inside this golden box that represented on earth God's throne in heaven, located in the innermost room of the tabernacle. When the presence of the Lord descended, the Lord's glory rested on the Ark of the Covenant. God is holy. The words that he spoke from Mount Sinai are holy. Holiness is the word that tells us about God's separation from all that is sinful, his separation from everything that is a violation of his moral character. 
And this is why the Israelites declared to Moses in unison in Exodus 20, verse 19, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. The glory of God had descended on the mountain. There was not yet an Ark of the Covenant at this point. The people, verse 18, perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. What they saw and felt and heard that was emanating from Mount Sinai terrified them. When the people saw it, verse 18, they trembled and they stood at a distance, as well they should. We read a chapter earlier that whoever touched the boundary of the mountain, man or beast, would be put to death. The thunder roaring and the lightning flashing and the trumpet blasting and the mountain smoking all reinforced the distinction between the Holy One and His people. The law that came forth from the mouth of God further divides the absolute perfection of the character of God from the imperfect and immoral character of man. What do you do when you're suddenly and acutely aware of the holiness of God? You tremble. You take a step back. You realize the truth of the words that God speaks to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. The Ten Commandments, they drive God's holiness home to our hearts. Something else that we read about the Ten Commandments, this time in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, is this. When God had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. Of course, God is spirit and does not have a physical finger. The picture here is that God personally wrote the commandments. His fingerprint is upon them. The commandments reflect him. The Lord cannot be separated from his word. God is intimate with his law. Because God is good, his law is good. The fact that the commandments are written in stone points to their enduring quality. That which is etched in a rock remains. It will not wipe away, wash away, or burn up in a fire. This is why we use stones for tombstones, because they last. The Ten Commandments will not change. They are the moral code embedded in each of us and applicable to all of us. Rocks are inflexible. The Ten Commandments will not budge. When you come up against a rock, Either respect its immobility, or you get bruised. Do you know why the Ten Commandments have traditionally been posted in courtrooms? Because our, our whole Western system of judicial proceedings is based on God's law. The sense of justice within each of us rings like a tuning fork when we hear the commandments. They tell us what is right, and they tell us what is wrong. There's no moral relativism here. There's no... Your truth and my truth here, there's only God's clear truth. The truth is unchangeable. It's unmovable. It's enduring. It was not only that God himself spoke these words and that his terrifying presence manifested on the mountain that drove the Israelites to ask him to stop speaking. It was also his voice. The authoritative tone with which God spoke these ten commands drove the Israelites to fear that they would die. They experience what Paul says about the law in Romans 7, 12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There is no fault with God's law. There is no fault with God's presentation. 
the law teaches us about the holiness of the Lord. It is set apart to reflect his character. The law points us to the goodness of God. It's an expression of his heart. The law shows us the righteousness of God. If anyone can keep it, they will be considered right in God's eyes. The fault does not lie with God or with his commands. The fault lies with those who hear it. The fault lies with you and me. So then, having considered the nature of the law, what it is, what is the purpose of the law for the non-Christian? What's it for? What is the purpose of the law for the non-Christian? This is Moses' response to the people in verse 20. Chapter 20. Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. The law is a test. When you take a test, there are two outcomes. You either pass or you fail. If the Israelites keep the law, they will pass. If they do not keep the law, they will fail. The thing about this test is the only passing grade is 100%. Sorry. And we know by now what the verdict is going to be, not only for them, but for us. If the bar to pass is 100%, then anything less than perfectly keeping the law is a failing grade. You might avoid, for the most part, any outward breaches of the law. You don't make idols with your hands. You never take God's name in vain with your lips. You haven't killed anyone. You've never cheated on your spouse. You try to be truthful with what you say. You've never even stolen the stick of gum. Yet, we all understand by now that the law probes much deeper than our external actions. We spent the last 10 weeks unpacking the extent of how we each break the commandments at the heart level. I want us to consider this morning two ways. Two ways the Ten Commandments accomplish their purpose as a test. We find the first way in Romans 3.20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The commandments were not given to justify anyone before God. The only way the commandments could justify you or make you right with God is if you kept them perfectly. Of course, God realized this when he gave the law to Israel. The law was never designed to make you right with God. The law was designed to reveal how you were not right with God. This is why through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's like going into a dark room. You can make out some pieces of furniture. You can see well enough to navigate through the room without bumping into anything for the most part. It's dim, but you're confident you can find your way around. However, flip on the light and suddenly it all changes. You see the actual condition of the room. There are roaches scurrying across the floor. The unmade bed has rotten food lying near the headboard. The desk has a layer of dust and grime on it. You get the point. The light allowed you to see the reality of the state of the room, not just what you dimly perceived in the dark. The Ten Commandments are the same thing for us. They are the light that allows us to see our true condition. But here's the thing. You don't try to clean up the room with the light. That's ridiculous. The light simply allows you to see things more clearly. Many people try to clean up the mess of their lives by keeping the rules, by trying harder, by doing their best, and it doesn't work. It's like trying to clean up a filthy room with light beams. You simply need the light to see, not to fix the problem. Looking at Exodus 19 shows us the Israelites' 
attitude right before the giving of the Ten Commandments. They confidently proclaim in verse 8 of chapter 19, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But after they receive the law from the very mouth of God, they don't even want God to speak anymore. We look at life, we consider what it means to be a good person, and then we say, I got this. And then the law comes along and declares, one lie makes you a liar. One slip of the tongue makes you a blasphemer. One lustful thought makes you an adulterer. One misplaced moment of worship makes you an idolater. The knowledge of sin enters with the law. We all know this scenario. It's happened to people that we love, or it might have even happened to you at one point. You go to the doctor for a checkup. You feel fine. There's nothing that gives you any cause for concern. You're confident that it's going to be just another routine checkup. But after they do your blood work and they take a few basic tests, the doctor returns with a grave face. I'm afraid you have a serious condition. You can't see it. And I don't think it's causing any visible symptoms yet, but my tests show you have something going on. So, of course, you go in for more tests, right? Further, imaging brings into focus the exact location of what's a tumor. You need immediate treatment or the growth is going to kill you. The tests and the scans the doctors ran are not your problem. The cancer is your problem. The law is not your problem or mine. Sin is our problem. The depth and effects of our sin is not always apparent, but allow the Holy Spirit to do his work through the test of the law, and you will clearly see what you could not see before. You need immediate intervention. The second thing the law does as a test is to lead us to a solution for our failure. How well or how badly you do in a test shows what you need to do from there. The law is the test, not the solution. But the, the law does lead to the solution. We read this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Keep in mind, we're talking about the purpose of the law before you are a Christian. Many, many people mistakenly think that the law was designed to bring you closer to God. The law can never bring you closer to God. All it can do is show you how far away you are from Him. Well, you say, if that's true, I'll just try harder. Trying harder actually only reveals even more your inability and my inability to please God by the works of the law. There's a passage out of Paul Bunyan's classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress. It illustrates this. One character is the interpreter, and he's guiding the main character, whose name is Christian. Then the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust, because never swept. The which, after he had reviewed it a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now when he began to sweep, the dust began to so abundantly fly about that Christian had almost therewith been choked. So we've all done this before. You sweep a very dusty room, and the dust flies up, and you start coughing, making it impossible to breathe. Later, the interpreter, he explains this to Christian. The parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions 
that have defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law. Do you see what's happening here? The law comes in. It doesn't cleanse you. That was never the law's purpose. When you try hard to keep the law, it's like sweeping the dust. Suddenly all that sin that was already present in your heart is stirred up. The interpreter continues. Now, whereas thou sawest that so soon as the dust began to sweep, the dust did fly about the room, that thou was almost choked therewith. This is to show thee that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, does revive, put strength into, and increase it in the soul, even as it does discover and forbid it, for it does not give power to subdue. You don't need more brooms. That is, you don't need more laws. You need something to get rid of the dust. I just read from Galatians 3 how the law is like a tutor. A tutor in the Greco-Roman society that Paul is writing into in the book of Galatians, the tutor was not an actual teacher as we would think of one. Families that could afford to send their child to school would send a slave along with the child. The slave was called a tutor in that capacity. The tutor did not teach the child academics. That was the teacher's job. The tutor stayed with the student during class to make sure that he behaved. The tutor was there to ensure that the child will listen to the teacher's instruction. I think we might need some of those now. What Paul means in Galatians 3.24 is that the law is like the slave who accompanies you. He's the guide to lead you to the one who will actually impart what you need. The law is the guide that leads you to Jesus. The law cannot give you what you need, but it does lead you to the one who can. Listen to all of verse 24 of Galatians 3. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The Ten Commandments, they don't make you right with God. They lead you to the one who can make you right with God. When you're trying to keep the law in order to be right with God, you are relying on the slave to impart what only the teacher can give you. As Christian and the Pilgrim's Progress stood choking in the dust that was stirred up all that sweeping, the interpreter said to a damsel that stood by, Bring hither water and sprinkle the room, which when she had done, it was swept and cleansed with pleasure. The interpreter explained, She that brought water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. When the gospel comes into the sweet and gracious influences thereof to the heart, then I say, even as thou saw the damsel lay the dust by sprinkling the fourth water, so is the soul made clean through faith, and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit. Only when we see our sinfulness in light of God's holiness do we realize our need for deliverance from our sins. When the law then leads you to Christ, it has served its purpose. What then is the purpose of the law for the Christian? We talked about the purpose of the law for the non-Christian. What is the purpose of the law for the Christian? What's it for? If the law leads you to Christ and you place your trust in him, does it have a further purpose? Or is the law irrelevant to the Christian? Well, the answer is yes. The law does serve a purpose for the Christian. No, it is not irrelevant. It's just, it doesn't serve the same purpose 
as it does to the one who has not yet come to Christ for salvation. The purpose of the law is different for the Christian than it is for the non-Christian. And Moses speaks about this in Exodus 20, verse 20. The reason God tests you with the law is so that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. You see, the purpose of the Ten Commandments for the Christian is that they lead you to not sin. And on the surface, it sounds like this is all simply behavior modification. Like, right, okay, I'm a Christian. I've been forgiven of my sins. Now I simply obey God. Well, this is true. The problem is, most of us try to obey God as Christians the same way we did as non-Christians, in our own strength. This is the dilemma that we've all experienced. You felt the condemnation of your sins. You longed to be free from your guilt. And so you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that he died, taking the punishment you deserve in your place. You believe that he rose from the dead to justify you, to make you right with God. You called upon the name of the Lord, and you received the assurance that you were saved. You were freed from the guilt that you carried because of your past disobedience. In a word, you became a Christian. And now you're ready to follow God wherever he leads. The problem is, you go about it the way that you've always done. You try to obey God in your own strength. And you find that it is exhausting. You find yourself defeated by the same sins over and over. You cry out in despair. I thought I was done with all of that. But the power of sin feels just as strong as before. The power to overcome it just as elusive. No wonder. You're simply going about controlling your behavior the way that you've always gone about it in the past. You buckle down. You exercise some discipline. You ratchet up the willpower. You are now a new creation in Christ, but you're still living your life under the old operating system. It happens all the time. However, something has changed. Something significant has changed. And understanding what this change is makes all the difference between living free from sin versus constantly being defeated by it. We find the answer in Jeremiah, first of all, chapter 31. If you want to turn there, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 33. Listen to the words of the prophet as he looks forward to what God will do. Prophets looking forward, and what he sees is what we now know as a reality under the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Did you catch it? Makes all the difference in the world between victory and defeat. At Mount Sinai, the Lord wrote his law on stone tablets. He placed his law upon the people. It was external to them. But all of this changed after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit takes God's law and now places it within his people. The Lord writes his law on your heart, not on stone tablets. The law is internalized. What does this mean for us? Look over at Jeremiah chapter 32. If you're in 31, flip over to 32. 
verses 38 through 39. Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 39, read, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always, for their own good, and for the good of their children after them. And then halfway through verse 40, I will put the fear of me in their hearts, so they will not turn away from me. What's it saying here? It's saying that God takes what was external and he makes it internal. He changes the desires of your heart. Before you were a Christian, your desire was to please yourself, not God. Now that God's law is internalized, you want to obey it. This is why you feel so discouraged when you fail to live in a way that pleases God. This is why sin grieves the Christian. God's very law, which is holy, righteous, and good, is implanted in your heart. And so you now cry with David in Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. God places the fear of him within you, not the terror of standing before a smoking mountain and begging that the Lord stop speaking. No, this is the fear of God that makes you want to move toward him, because you know that moving away from him is only death and darkness and despair. I read a great illustration of this the other day. Imagine that you're in the back of a motorcycle. One of those uh, sleek street bikes that's designed for speed. They used to be ninjas back when I was growing up. don't know what they're called now, but you know what I'm talking about. The driver is excellent. You know that he's not going to make any mistakes. But he's going at an extremely high speed down the interstate. What do you do? You lean in and you hold on. You're holding on because if you let go and lean back, you'll hit the pavement. You're not afraid of the driver per se, but you are afraid to let go of the driver. The fear of the Lord is a lot like this. You're not afraid to lean into God, but you are afraid to let go and go your own way. This is the fear that accompanies the law when God writes it on your heart. You fear not obeying him because how could you disobey one that's been so good to you? You desire to walk in his ways because this is the path of freedom from the sin that so easily entangles you. Remember, at the beginning of this series, I said, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. Freedom is the ability to do what God wants you to do. Before you were a Christian, you had no real desire to do what God wanted you to do, nor did you have the power to do. But now, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.3, you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The Spirit writes God's law on your heart and gives you the ability to keep it. So how do you access that power? Well, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe that's not the answer you were expecting. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul meant when he asked in Galatians 3.3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, a person only comes to Christ for salvation when they have come to the end of themselves. If you're a Christian today, it's because sometime in the past, you stopped trying and you started trusting your salvation came about through faith in Christ. We can agree on that. The mistake of many Christians, and all of us are guilty of this at one time or another, is thinking this. 
Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself. Now it's all up to me to live the Christian life. But no, it's not. You relied on Christ for salvation, but you're not now relying on him for sanctification. You trusted in Christ's work to save you, but now you're trusting in your own works to make you holy. You acknowledged your need for Jesus' work on the cross on your behalf, but you're not acknowledging your need for Jesus' work within you through his resurrection. You trusted Christ initially, but now you're trusting in yourself to live a life that's pleasing to him. The truth is, you can no more obey God in your own strength now than you could save yourself in your own strength then. If we could just lay hold of that. Stop trying to keep the law in your own strength. It did not work then. It will not work now. Start trusting in the the present work of the Spirit within you to be your strength to live the life that God calls you to live. The law is internal for the believer. It's written on your heart. It's not an external slab of stone set to crush you under its impossible expectations. Let me show you how this works out practically. Sometimes we're so focused on the death of Christ for salvation that we miss the importance of his life for salvation. There was an event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, one that can be confusing to us. Jesus came to his cousin, John the Baptist, who was baptizing people in the Jordan River. Everyone who was baptized by John was responding to his message to repent, to turn from those things that were not pleasing to God. When Jesus came to John for baptism, John was confused. He knew Jesus. And he knew that Jesus had nothing to repent of. And this is why John said, you should be the one to baptize me. What did Jesus respond with? Permitted at this time, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then Jesus was immersed by John. This is what is happening here. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life before God. He practiced perfect obedience. He fulfilled all righteousness. Baptism is identification. When a cloth is dipped in dye, it takes on the color of the dye. It is identified with the new color. When Jesus was baptized, he identified himself with the human race. He did not get baptized for himself. He got baptized on our behalf. Though Jesus had never sinned and he never would, he chose to identify himself with our sinful human race. It was as if he was proclaiming, I will live the life you should live. I will practice perfect obedience on your behalf. That's exactly what Jesus did. He showed us what it looks like to do the will of God every second of every day. He showed us the life God intended for everyone to live. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but fulfill. Not only did Jesus keep the Ten Commandments outwardly, he kept them inwardly. He demonstrated with his words and thoughts and behavior what it looks like to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus identified himself with you and me at his baptism. Because he lived a sinless life, he could die in the place of sinners. Because he had no sins of his own to be punished for, he could be punished for yours. 
Jesus died for all. His life, his death, and his resurrection, however, are only applied to those who trust him. We tend to emphasize more the role of his death and salvation than the role of his life. But both are crucial if you are to understand the purpose of the law and the life of the Christian. You see, Jesus took your sin so that he can give you his righteousness. Your sin was held against Jesus so that his righteousness might be bestowed on you. As one person wrote, God treated Christ as we deserve to be treated so that he might treat us as Christ deserved to be treated. What does this mean when it comes to keeping God's law for the Christian? It means that God will never hold your disobedience against you because it's already been held against Jesus. It means that you are approved, accepted, and loved because of the perfect life Jesus lived. There's nothing you can do that will change how God views you if you're a Christian. God looked at you exactly as he looks at his son. And this has enormous implications for thinking about the law in our lives. First, you obey the Ten Commandments because it's pleasing to God to do so. Jesus perfectly obeyed them, and he was perfectly pleasing to God. If you're a Christian, your greatest desire will be to please God. Secondly, you now have the ability to obey the law. Before you were a Christian, you had no power within to please God. But now the very Spirit of God is at work, strengthening and empowering you to live a life that's pleasing from within. Thirdly, when you fail to obey God as you should, you know that does not change anything about your standing before Him. God views you the same on your worst day as He does on your best. You are accepted and loved for Christ's sake and for no other reason. And this frees you to obey from the heart, not from duty. This frees you to obey out of love for God, not from fear of punishment. If the law can be summed up with love God and love your neighbor, then God desires you obey him from a heart that's consumed with love. What is the fuel for that love? What, what fans the flame? Well, it's the love that God has shown you in Christ. You know that God does not accept you on how well you keep the Ten Commandments, or on how well you perform, or based on your efforts, or based on anything else that you've done, are doing, or will do. God accepts you based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus kept the law because you and I could not. God loves you as much today as he did the day that Jesus died for you. God loves you as much today as he will a billion years from now. You are free to love him because he first loved you. You are motivated to love him because he first loved you. If you know that God never bases his love for you on how well you perform, then you will stop performing. You'll begin loving. And there's nothing more compelling than to realize over and over again that God sees you, brother or sister, as if you live the perfect life that Jesus lived. Now live out of that love. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you provided everything that we need 
through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. Lord, thank you that as we experience your love, we can find the motivation, we can find the acceptance, we can find the power to live a life that's pleasing to you. That's really what your law expresses. This is the life that I want you to live. And this is the life, Lord, that you empower us to live. Help us to lay hold of these truths. And we ask this in Jesus' name.